On this episode, I'm speaking with Cody Dietrich, partner at Hayes Dietrich. Cody runs the development side of the company after spending his career specializing in multifamily residential development, including affordable, mixed income, and luxury housing across the Twin Cities and Nashville markets. Overall, Cody has been involved in the development or substantial rehab of over 2,000 multifamily units, totaling in excess of 500 million in total development costs. Right now, Cody's jumping in on 700 plus units entitled for his new company, both in Southern California and Minnesota. Without further ado, let's dive into this conversation with Cody. Finally, we've made it. Thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I want to jump right into your your background and, and from our past conversations, I know that you literally grew up amongst farmland uh, throughout Southern Minnesota. So tell the listeners a little bit about kind of that area that you grew up and what that was like. Yeah, so I grew up outside of Austin, Minnesota, which um, is the host of Hormel Foods, a Fortune 500 company. Um, but really that's as much as there is in Austin. And I actually went to a small school called Hayfield High School um, for for all my um, high school and elementary school. My elementary school actually was in Brownsdale, which is a town of 700. Hayfield's a town of a thousand people. So pretty small, uh, wow. graduate with 50 kids. Two of them are Ford Exchange students at the time. So um, come from a very small background with most of my friends back home being farmers and continuing that lifestyle. And so what was the, like, what was your family life back then? Like what, what are the jobs in a town of that size in Minnesota? Because I, I, I know some people that have grown up in, in Minnesota, but most of them are out of the twin cities, you know, specifically. So what is, what are the jobs? What's the farm life like out there for, for adults? Yeah. So growing up, a lot of my um, friends, their parents worked at Mayo Clinic in Rochester um, and they'd go, go there or um, like my dad works in, still works in the smokehouse at Hormel. He worked there back when I was a kid and then transferred to a few other food manufacturing places. But then he went back there probably 10, 12 years ago and has been there since. And he's mm. working third shift, uh, six to seven days a week, typically, uh, in the past. Wow. So really grinding it out. But, but most, most people are kind of farmers, um, mixed in with some, some light services here and there. And then, um, Mayo Clinic is one of the, the biggest probably employer down in that area by far. And one of the things that we had chatted about briefly was growing up sort of amongst the farmland, it was ingrained in you at an early age to sort of do do whatever you needed to do to like get it done. Sort of like this kind of like put your nose to the grindstone, get things taken care of. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel like you could kind of point to that upbringing as, as a reason why you have that kind of ingrained in your in your personality today or did it sort of surface through a particular parent or, or what would you say there? Yeah, I'd say that, you know, kind of the hard work ethic and, you know, no excuses was ingrained at a young age. My my dad grew up on a dairy and, and farm and also did crops at the same time too and had his chores and um, he's pretty simple and just, you know, not tons of words, but just grinds it out. And like I said, he works six or seven days a week, uh, third shift and he turned 65 this year. So um, really just with that, that mentality of, you know, just get, get the job done. I mean, mm. when I was 13, um, I'd help some neighbor farmers bale hay and things like that, you know, and um, those hay bales got to be pretty heavy at 50, 60 pounds, whatever. And I'm just a little 13 year old trying to huck them over my head. So you just, you didn't complain. I, I actually fell off the wagon once um, bailing hay. Cause I got told to jump off. I were going 20 miles an hour and 
you just get up and you run and you keep going. So there's Ugh. no time. Just rub some dirt on it. <laughs> did you, uh, did you end up staying around that area for, uh, for school? Did you go to college or did you, um, potentially kind of branch out, leave the state or, or what did that look like? Yeah. So a lot of people kind of from my area went to most of the state schools, the Winona state, Mankato state, and myself and a couple of kids, a couple of my really good buddies I actually graduated with. We all went to St. Cloud state. So nice two and a half, three hours away from, from home, but not too far away, but far enough. So we're not getting bombarded by parents or anything like that. Um, so I, I went to St. Cloud state, uh, started in 2010 and, um, was a double major in finance and marketing there. And, um, you mentioned to me that kind of marketing was your first major and finance, if I have this right, was kind of a, a quote unquote second major that came very late in your tenure. Uh, while you were out, out at school, what, why did that come so late and kind of what was, what was the thinking there? Yeah. When I, when I declared my major at probably the end of my freshman year, I was planning on doing both, but then I got a little further along and realized that I have to stay for four and a half years, a double major. And I was a little bit further along in marketing. So I, I finished that out and graduated in four years and uh, really got to the end of that, that time and, and didn't know what I wanted to do. And, you know, seeing what jobs are available and kind of starting at, uh, a low spot, not really having tons of up climbing and having to really, really work the ladder over a long period of time. Um, I saw a little bit more opportunity in finance. So I actually um, took one summer course after I graduated, um, which was the introduction to real estate and, you know, really fell in love with the, the ideal of that. I never really knew about real estate growing up. Um, my, my experience was very little because there's not any development or anything really happening in, in Austin, Minnesota. And Hayfield, Minnesota, all these small towns. Um, so it's, it was kind of a, a new feat to me, but the development side really interested me in creating something that you can actually see as tangible. Um, so I basically had started going back and then I cranked out, I think it was 18 credits in the fall to, to finish my finance major because I had, I only think I had two classes going um, when I first graduated um, done in finance, two or three. So yeah, um, just busted it out to get it done. And, yeah. Uh, the finance major at St. Cloud was made up of, they called it fire is made up of finance, insurance, and real estate. And so by taking that introduction to real estate, I really I found a, that to be a key focus of what I wanted to do and did a couple more real estate classes in the fall and tried to focus it a little bit more that way. Yeah. It's, uh, it, circling back just really quickly. It's funny that you mentioned Mankato because one of my good buddies, uh, who lived in Denver for a long time was born and raised in Mankato, spent mm -hmm. a little time in the Twin Cities, but but ended up coming out to uh, to, to Denver, Colorado to kind of start his his professional career. And I'd always hear the mm -hmm. stories of small town life um, back in Mankato. <laughs> and uh, not many people say that. Like I, I've probably heard that. I could count it on one hand in the last, you know, 15 years. So that's that's pretty interesting that you said that. Um, most of the most of my friends, I think, and people I went to high school with who went to known as Mankato, St. Clouds, they all I would say 80% live them back home, 85 maybe. So yeah. a majority live there. I was actually going through this with a friend recently. And I'm like, I actually, my, one of my friend's younger brothers, who's three or four years younger than us, I ran into him last week. And it's like, I maybe know eight people that live in the Twin Cities up and down <laughs> three years, basically, of, of grades. So yeah, it's, it's kind of wild. Well, let's talk about this real estate transition because I want to kind of get into, um, it's been a pretty busy you know, last decade for you as you've kind of gotten to the place where you are today. And, um, it's a really interesting story and, and I want to make sure that we, um, get into this idea of sort of starting your own thing, um, kind of boutique solo partnership development company. Um, 
coming out of the COVID era. But first, I'll, let's set the stage. So this was like around 2015. You ended up with an opportunity to join the team at Dominium, and and I want to make sure that we set that stage properly because I think it it's it's um, it's telling for the next bit of your career there, kind of how you cut your teeth and, and, and gained experience um, in a couple of different opportunities. But what was that like, and and what was that first role specifically? Yeah, so. January 1 or January 2 of 2015, I, I started at Dominium as an intern. I actually, um, you know, luckily enough in college through my marketing, one of my marketing clubs, I got connected with um, a friend there who ended up having a job in the marketing department at Dominium. And she connected me with the, the hiring manager at the time on the development side and um, interviewed for the internship. Actually probably wouldn't have got hired on if it would have been the summer because a lot of people, um, Dominium, historically had come most of their people from Wisconsin, Madison, and had a lot of connections where you're looking at second generation people in private equity and real estate who had connections who had previous uh, internships at other companies. So in the summer, the applicants, um, the applicant pool, I should say, was very large, but in the spring and or in the fall, it was a little bit harder to place interns. So um, basically talked my way in with, with some of my, you know, experiences doing random things and um, my, my majors and, uh, got a chance to start that January, 2015 and really spent, you know, five months grinding it out and, um, a little bit similar to probably like an investment banker culture where it's, you know, really, really grind and put your time in and, and that's just what's expected. And when I started out, there were about 12, 13 associates, I would say. And, um, most of the candidates that started there as associates got, hired on from the internship program. So they use that as really a, a chance as a long-term interview that could then turn into a full-time position. And so there were a few people that got, got hired previously that, that didn't have interns, uh, internships with the company. Um, but so I grinded out for the five months, uh, got to the end and still had to go through a full day interview, no different than anybody else where we <laughs> did, uh, met with all the partners again, they, they grilled you each which way, you had to take an Excel test to know, uh, show that you understood financial modeling and, and really got through that. And so then, then got hired on full time and, and worked there for several years after. And um, for those who don't know Dominium, Dominium is one of the largest affordable housing developers in the country. Um, I think when I was there, they were top two every year, maybe three um, one year, but um, really putting out, um, buying a lot of properties and renovating them or starting to build a new construction platform to, to really add um, affordable housing across the country. Let's talk about that. So you were in, involved in a, in a first I guess your first few projects were um, in a particular area of the country. Uh, the first time, I guess, Dominion was was in this area of the country. Talk, talk us through, you know, what that what that was like as you were sort of finding your feet uh, with Dominion. Yeah, I was lucky enough, kind of at the end of my internship, that I was working on a couple projects in the Nashville metro that um, they hit, and basically we were putting them in our contract about two weeks before I started full time. So luckily, walked in the door day one and was able to go off running on two new projects um, in that area with the same seller, which wasn't helpful. Um, so Nashville was a new market for, for Dominium. And I think at the time when I first started, we were in about 18 states. And um, at one point they were up to 30 states. And I think they're maybe back down to 24 with buying and selling and different things like that. But um, really active across the, the country, um, mostly except for kind of maybe the Northeast and um, California and uh, Washington, all those kind of upper Northwest states. Mm. Um, 
but had the chance to do that and start a new market, which was interesting. But to Dominium, it was not too much of a shocker because they had grown so heavily over the years. Um, but uh, after having those first two, we were able to add on a couple more. And then um, the new construction platform at Dominion was taking off probably a year or two before I started. And we had a, a couple of new construction projects, but then we really put a focus on to it in 15, 16, because of, you know, where interest rates were and the availability in the market and just looking to expand while, while times are good. So mm. um, we really started looking into Nashville to, to build a new, new construction area um and so i helped kind of put that together with um really my my mentor and, and boss at the time russ condis and ryan lunderby over at dominium and if my notes serve me correctly those are 160 and 184 unit uh deals out, just outside of nashville um was that was that at the time that you had already become a development associate or is this uh does that predate that time where you transitioned into the associate level yeah, so those we, we put them under con those are the two projects we put under contract as the end of my internship. And then I became a staff associate, which was just a lower level development associate, kind of similar to an analyst in a lot of other companies. Um and worked underneath a senior development associate who was Russ Condis at the time and um great mentor to me and really uh took the reins and helped helped really teach me the right way to do things. So very appreciative to him. But yeah, so the the first two were the 160 and 184 units. We acquired them. They're about 20 years old. And then we resyndicated them and put new tax credits on and did $5 million-esque uh, renovations, new clubhouse, clubhouse additions, et cetera. Mm. Did you have an opportunity to work on any projects in Minneapolis, you know, being based out of the Twin Cities during your time at Dominium, or were you focused specifically out of state for that for that role? Yeah, so uh, we were doing some stuff in Minnesota. It just kind of depend on where you landed at. And so my primary focus was Nashville and we added two more properties to that. And then we had a property under contract and we're pushing it forward for new construction um, as I was leaving. Um, and then I sort of did some you know, stuff in Texas and Orlando and um, pass some of those projects off or they didn't work out. So those are kind of my main markets I looked at, but then I was able to put to under contract a um, project called, known as 1500 Nicollet in Loring Park in Minnesota, um, just outside of downtown. Um, that was the first new construction building that Dominion had done that was six stories. So we kind of came up with a, a new model. And at the time it, it worked out great um, just based off where the, the market was, where people's appetite was for tax credits to do these low-income housing tax credit deals. And so um, really opened up a new door for a different building type for Dominion. Thanks for listening to this episode of Transforming Cities. Brought to you by Authentic. Authentic delivers premier multifamily brand experiences and smart digital marketing. Our proven approach aims to accelerate leasing velocity, boost rental rates, and increase long-term value. Simply put, we see brand as a business asset. You can find out more at AuthenticFF.com. I don't want to give too much away, but but there ended up being a fateful March Madness happy hour not too far down the <laughs> line in the story of, for you with Dominion. But um, I, I'm, I'm first wondering, with all that great experience, what ended up starting to pull you away from, from that career path specifically as you started to maybe look for what was next? I know that it culminated with a, with a March Madness happy hour, but what happened before that? And, and then where did you end up with that, with that happy hour meeting? Yeah. So we were, um, you know, Dominion, the great part of that was very structured and career path. And 
So at the time when I was there, it was basically an eight year career path to become a partner and looking at kind of the, the future esque of that. At the time, I think we had eight partners and by 2025, they were looking to have 11 or 12 partners and maybe one or two were going to retire because of age and different things. Um, but realistically, again, I was number 12 or 13 on the totem pole when I got hired on and a couple people had left at that point. But um, looking at that and knowing there's maybe going to be three or four spots available and assuming that some people are going to stay, it's kind of like, you know, what happens if I get to that point and there's just no spots and, and now things have changed and stuff like that. They're open to more partners, but at the time it was, you know, don't, don't shut down any other opportunities, be open to things. And um, as I think everybody should at least have conversations and turning down a conversation is probably the, the worst thing you can ever do. It, mm. You're the worst thing you can tell somebody is no, but you, you might learn something about yourself or them that may help you grow in your career or change your mind down the road. So um, definitely be open to those conversations. But um, I was, you know, I had it in the back of my mind for six months, a year when we had some of our meetings and um, just some of the future planning and understanding the career path. And um, I was actually at a March Madness happy hour, I'd been in 2017 and uh, was talking to a few people. And then I ended up talking to a couple of the executives at the Doran team. And for, for no reason, my, my buddy um, was who worked at Dominion was talking me up. I don't know why. Maybe it's because he was drinking a little too much. <laughs> and he, he's friendly. Mm-hmm. But so we started talking. And then uh, they reached out to me um, a week later and just asked to grab lunch and uh, went and had some lunch and said they're looking to really grow their development department because at the time it was basically Kelly Doran and then uh, two other people and um, realistically trying to really put an emphasis on that because the, the, in 2017, you know, there was still a lot of opportunity. The The market had been good for a while and just really looking to, to add to that growth pattern. So mm. had the chance to go sit down with a couple of people and just chat, chat with Kelly himself and um, found that we were kind of on a similar wavelength and uh, they offered me a job and the rest is history. Uh, went to Doran shortly thereafter. And you told me that um, you actually mentioned to your wife um, at the time, back in 2017, that, you know, you, you were sort of saying, man, if I could learn from from Kelly for the next five years, that would be incredible. And I think, you know, looking back, that's roughly about exactly <laughs> what happens. <laughs> yeah, I, I so, left just under five years. But yeah, we, we joked yeah. about that. I'm like, the worst that comes from this is I go get all this experience learning from Kelly. So that was a, a big driver of the decision. And, yeah. You know, I even when I left Dominion, there was no hard feelings. And they're like, this is a great opportunity for you to have a chance to learn from Kelly. So we, we wish you all the best. I, you know, I, I've learned a lot in our conversations just about the differences between a Dominium and a Doran companies. Maybe you could paint that picture for listeners and viewers. You know, you transitioned to Doran um, around 2017. You were there for just under five years, as you said. Um, but that was a very different role, very different sort of culture than at than Dominion, you know, not mm-hmm. saying one is better than the other, but it's just different. Could you talk about what, what those differences were like, kind of what that day-to-day was like at Doran? Yeah. And so Dominion, again, is a, an affordable housing developer. And, and there was an allure to it of going to Doran because it was building luxury class A ass, multifamily assets. So um, really changing it from, you know, build, going to, to buy 1990s buildings and renovate them or, you know, doing some new construction that's a a little bit lighter than those luxury buildings um, was a good opportunity. And at Dominium, you know, it's, it's much more financially uh, 
looking at the numbers and understanding that to a, to a T and that's what really drives these affordable housing because of all the subsidies you need and the different programs you have to go through. So that makes it a little bit more difficult. Whereas switching to Doran was an opportunity to really learn about more of the design side and um, focus on, you know, adding value in different spots. Um, on the affordable side, you can only capture so much value. You can, there's a max rent you can charge with luxury, you know, it's how can we, expand the unit or put in a special feature or, you know, amenity package that'll increase rents um, from our, from our renter profile um, to really drive up, drive up the value of the building. And so that yeah. was something that was very intriguing to me. And so Dominion was again, much more financially engineering and financially based and um, not saying that Dorn wasn't financially based, but it was a way to be a little bit more creative and think outside the box of how we could get the numbers to work. And, Right. For me, it was a great opportunity because we had architecture and construction in-house. Both companies had man property management in-house, so that was always a benefit everywhere I was at. But um, it was a big chance for me to really learn the new construction side and how buildings are put together. And it was great being able to walk upstairs and basically ask as many questions as I want and try to be a sponge. And, you know, no, no question is a dumb question um, and just trying to learn as much as possible. That, that dovetails really nicely into this next point I wanted to make sure we cover, but it, you know, from, from our earlier conversations, it, it really seemed like a huge difference was your ability to literally, like literally go on site, walk construction sites, pop your head in the door, have these conversations in a way that allowed you to be that sponge and learn so much really quickly. Uh, yep, exactly. Nail on the head. Uh, the, the benefit is Dorn, all the projects were local. We were doing some stuff in Denver, but realistically, you know, once I had projects under construction, I was on site once a week, typically. And then as I got, you know, a couple of years in, I was on some sites almost every day. Um, and during COVID, uh, we were at home for a month and my wife and I lived in one of Doran's apartments. We actually lived there for about four years downtown. And it was a, a great experience again for like a sponge, just residents coming up to me knowing I work for the company asking questions but also seeing you know what they liked what were the benefits of living in a, in a property um, how could we make things better um, talking to property management and maintenance and just understanding how their day-to-days work you know how we can make things more practical and efficient um, so that was great but I think just having that opportunity was was really beneficial but during COVID we again we worked at home for the first month and um, living in a two bedroom apartment with my wife, I talk really loud. She was going nuts for me <laughs> working in the second bedroom, me with the door closed. Um, so I ended up going to, I had two projects under construction at the time. I went to back and forth between two sites and basically just worked on the construction offices. So it was, that was also much more beneficial for me to mm -hmm. be able to, to learn and just be on site every day, basically. Looking back, I mean, this might be a tough question to answer, but you know, you're able to communicate with the superintendents, the subs on, on these jobs. Like, does anything stand out from any particular person or, or maybe a particular conversation that you had where you can look back now and, you know, with clarity and say, man, I learned so much from, from that, that one moment or that one person. Um, I would say, you know, kind of learning from everybody, walking the site with, with, with Kelly himself or, you know, walking with superintendents or project managers, you know, everybody played their role. I think the fact of being on site and going up. So one of the sites I was on was known as the Expo, which is a 25-story tower um, just on the east side of the river from downtown. But going up and watching them pour a level of concrete and, and do these things on the 20th floor or whatever it was, was 
was just it was cool to be on site and watch these things happen and be kind of part of it and then mm. you know lean over the super why are they why are they doing this why are they doing that and yeah and learning a few more of those things was very helpful well, yeah i love that so you speak you, you you're you're bringing it up right now and i wanted to get to this the the expo project in minneapolis 369 unit if i um mm-hmm. if i'm right there tower rise mid-rise retail big project kind of like the the i don't know the north star example of your time uh yeah. with this group talk to us about that project you know obviously luxury um huge impact for you just from a growth perspective and kind of the trajectory your career has taken uh so far with your journey uh, this was also kind of um, an interesting time, just in sort of like the history of um, of our nation. So, mm-hmm. throwing a lot of things at you here, but Expo Minneapolis, big deal for you. Lots of things going yeah. on. Let's let's dive into that. Yeah, I would say that that was kind of the crown jewel development um, of Doran Companies, and you know, it's it was the largest one, and it's the the most costs, and you know, we had done uh, in the past, we had done a, a thirteen story tower for another developer, and Kelly had done a 13 story tower for student housing just down the road for the university of Minnesota. And it was just an opportunity to, to get some tower experience, which was for one great. Um, but it was taking things to the next level. So in that building, we had 30,000 square feet of internal amenity space and then a courtyard in the center above the podium that was over 30,000 square feet. So really built out to the nines. We have had two dog runs on the 25th floor along with a, a club room, sky lounge kind of S area. So um, some really new, unique things. And the, the dog runs are the, the nicest ones you'll find in all the Twin Cities. Um, it's hard to find a 25th story uh, dog park. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I can't, I can't say I've heard of too many of those. Uh, yeah. And then, so I, I would say, you know, the timing of that. So we started that project in summer of 2018 and then it finished in um, late summer of 2020. And, you know, that was working through the heart of COVID um, right in the middle of the project, which was some, you know, which was tough and working through that, you know, we had 200 to 300 people on site most days when we were fully, fully going. And so it was a lot going on with that. And we actually opened the mid-rise portion of the building um, June 1st of 2020, which is three or four days after the George Floyd, George Floyd murder happened. So um, it was an interesting time and, you know, there were some, some marches and protests kind of going down university Avenue right by the project. And, um, it was interesting just because of, you know, part of the city was burning, but luckily enough, that project ended up on skate, you know, um, no real issues, but it, it was tough to work through it all and, and try to understand where the city was at. And, um, that was a long tenured process and, you know, unfortunate for all. And, you know, luckily enough on project specific we didn't have really any issues with that and we had nighttime security and everything like that helping with the project yeah yeah that i have to imagine that was quite a quite a time of uncertainty just on on a few different levels um obviously you have um all that unrest happening across the city and you know there's um you know there's a nation sort of collectively reacting one way or another and then you have this sort of micro focus, which is this building that's, you know, taken many years to get off the ground, let alone get in the air. And, um, Mm. I have to imagine that was sort of like not knowing what's happening next, but you were sort of riding the wave and and doing the best you could. Yep, exactly. And and my apartment was only a couple blocks away from there too. So it was, it made it easy to get to the site, but also I was, I was there trying to, to watch things that, you know, took my dog on my nightly walk and walking by to make sure everything's good and there, there's no issues. So 
trying to help keep an eye on it. And it was, it was a, a little bit of a nerve wracking time, but you know, again, we, we came out fine on that thing. And, Mm. um, but it was a a tough time for the overall city. You told me that the, one of the biggest things for you is, is just this idea of, of quality or, or the level of quality in product that, that Doran put, put out on this project. And you told me that there was somewhat of a blend here between affordable mixed income and all the way up to luxury. And and I know you have some pretty wild stats with regards to these, these penthouses, um, Mm -hmm. walk us through just kind of the makeup of that project in, in sort of, um, from sort of, I don't want to say lower end, but sort of like that, the entry level, sort of more affordable side, all the way up to that pretty, those pretty impressive, uh, you know, those penthouse units. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's kind of where my experience goes. This project itself really wasn't too much um, affordable mixed income. We did do um, just under 10 units, or I think we did 10 units exactly um, as part of our agreement with the city um, of affordable units, uh, a couple of them in the mid-rise. Um, but we were able to really drive up the value of some units. And we had some some big townhomes around the perimeter, the um, floor of the of the building. And I think, you know, the, the biggest town home was three bedrooms and it was 2,500 square feet. So it's kind of like a single family home and wow. had great views of the city, even from the second floor. And I'm um, really designed it that way. And you kind of alluded to the penthouses. So that um, at the top of the tower, um, it was 25 stories. The first 20 floors were uh, residential. The second floor was amenities. first and second floors were amenities, but um, 21 through 24, we did um, penthouse levels. And 21 through 23 were our penthouses and 24 were luxury penthouses. And we went down from 10 units to five units on the 21st through 23rd floor and four units on the 24th floor. And um, I would say that all the penthouses are approximately 2,100 square feet, but our, our largest one was just over 3000 square feet. Um, Really amazing views of downtown. You know, we, we upgraded all the, all the appliances, the, we did real wool, walnut wood flooring, um, custom closets and all the, through the systems, 12 foot ceilings in the top floor. So really built everything to the key and it, it's comparable, you know, the lowest penthouse is probably a low $1 million condos and the, the higher penthouses is probably a close to a $2 million condo. So it was oh. kind of cool to implement that into the project. And, and then the 25th floor was amenities above that, but having, um, some of the patios we had outside of these things were, you know, 500 square feet on a couple of the units, um, on the 21st, 22nd floor. So seeing that project through completion, you know, we're getting to the point now where 2022 is upon us. You decided it was time to do your own thing. I mean, this is a, this is a huge decision for anyone, obviously, but what was going on, I guess, with Doran and, and, and sort of within to help you make that decision, decide, you know what, I kind of want to, I want to go out on my own. Yeah, you know, at this at that point in time, kind of end of twenty one, had been thinking about some things. You know, I had felt comfortable comfortable in my experiences doing some of these large projects. You know, uh, worked on a couple other projects that were three hundred plus units or so, and um, really looked at it as an opportunity to have a chance to go lead something. And um, Doran, through the, the previous couple of years, had um, as part of a succession planning, kind of split up where Kelly Doran was a separate group from from Doran Companies and. Um, you know, some of the, the terms and stuff where I thought were going to be kind of changed a little bit. Um, so really just trying to think of long-term having a spot, you know, at the, at the table for equity and at the same time, being able to make some of the decisions that, that I wanted to, and, you know, chase the projects I wanted seemed like a, uh, an incredible opportunity if I could get it. And so I was lucky enough to start talking to some 
some people and connections I had from my Dominium days who were willing to, to support the venture and um, kind of led me into to taking the risk and, and jumping off and starting a new project. And um, one of the construction executives um, at Doran, his name is Calvin Hayes, um, had talked about wanting to kind of be on the owner side at the same time too. So we had some, some brief conversations and um, actually he used to live in Palm Desert, California before for about eight years uh, before he moved here 11 years ago and wanted to get back, but at the same time have a little bit more of that developer side experience. So we talked about it and kind of did some research on the, the market and found there to be a need. And uh, we kind of jumped off, put a site under contract. And then I, then I left and um, kind of the rest is, the rest is happening right now. <laughs> the, rest is, the rest isn't history yet. It's, no, it's not the rest by is happening. So this is the deal in Palm Desert. Uh, I think you said it was about 400 units and it's your first official project on your own. Hayes Dietrich, um, you, you know, it seems like you have a really great foundation under you as you move forward. What is, um, what is that project looking like um, as you start to sort of get into the, because I know that you're in the middle of the nitty gritty right now, but talk us, talk yeah. us through that project a little bit. Yeah. So when we were first looking at this, you know, again, my experience ranges from doing more boutique deals to again, 370 some units and then multi-phase deals of five, 600 units, whatever it is. Um, so really looked at it as an opportunity to find a site that probably down the fairway. And when we were first looking, we were trying to find a 200 to 250 unit site and um, a couple of the landowners that we uh, approached, you know, weren't willing to sell or, you know, questioned our, you know, our experience, um, and, you know, being new to the market out there. And at the same time, you know, what's your backing? It's hard to go from two major companies with lots of backing to, you know, you're, you're backed by a couple, couple guys who have the experience, yeah, like, but maybe not the balance sheets. Yeah. <laughs> um, so <laughs> it's me. So it's, uh, it was definitely interesting on that, but uh, we was able to, you know, work with the seller of this project we're working on. And um, it just so happens that the site's over 18 acres and supported 400 units. So um, to build it to max density, we, we designed a 400 unit project with uh, three story walk-ups. And then we tried to bring something new to the desert uh, and have a, three-story podium building with three stories, uh, 109 units, elevators, and underground parking. And the city had never seen underground parking in a residential building, didn't really understand it and kind of educating a little bit, but trying to bring a, a different type of product to serve more people in that community um, mm. and really push a, an incredible kind of best-in-class asset through there that um, not much development has happened in that area recently just because of uh, previously the zoning code only allowed, and even some cities still like high density residentials, 10 units an acre. So you can't really do that much right. with it. So, um, we've worked through it. We had some, some pains, um, going through kind of some of the NIMBYs uh, next door and getting challenged and, um, you know, educating and working through that. And, um, California's environmental processes are, are no joke. Um, and just how busy everybody is. So we, we put our applications in last June. And then um, after going through a, a few uh, battles, we'll call them uh, finally got approved in December, but then we got appealed again to city council um, in December and finally got full approvals at the end of January. So mm. we are approved. And, and right now we we're close, um, but just trying to finalize our financing, which is uh, ever so troublesome in the, the economy today and trying to figure out, you know, the financial markets and, Every day it changes. The Fed reports yesterday, today have not been great outlook on increasing rates, but um, everybody's dealing with the same thing. And, you know, it's 
no different from us or, you know, the biggest gray stars, the big companies across the country, they right. may be able to do be a little bit more flexible and, you know, take down land more easily than we can um, based off their financial backing, but everybody's dealing with the same issues. Well, one of the, one of the topics that you brought up, which I hope you don't mind, I'd love to put you on the spot for a minute about it. It feels like a hot button topic to me with the kind of like the larger four five, 600 unit buildings there's always concerns around environmental impacts, traffic, lack of design, et cetera, you know, and the nimbyism that you were referring to, you know, in some cases, I think that's, there's, there's some truth to that. And I think we need to be, um, I think there needs to be sort of an honest vulnerability about that, that sometimes it's mm -hmm. not the best. Um, but in other cases, those concerns aren't necessarily warranted. How, how do you combat that? And how have you tried to combat that narrative on this project out in California? Yeah. So I'd say, you know, it's, it's no easy feat. And, and I don't, I don't blame any of the neighbors. I understand where they're coming from. Change is hard. Um, you know, you get used to a certain um, comfortability with your neighborhood and what's going on and to, to add 400 units is, is a little disruptive. And um, most of the people just don't understand the development process and how that actually works. So in this market, the, the vacancy rate is zero to 1%. Um, there's really, nowhere to go. Most of the apartments have waiting lists and um, people, the rents have skyrocketed. Um, there's just no, no place to go. So people just don't have a choice if they want to stay in that community. And um, realistically, the, the biggest challenge with our project is we were between this condos um, project and the mountains and we were blocking some of their views. And um, what we did to really combat on that project is we turned our buildings at one point we had them parallel with the road in between us. We turned them perpendicular to allow view corridors through. And then we pulled one building out and pushed it in the back more to create a huge view corridor right through the middle of our site. And um, on a square or rectangle site, we wouldn't have been able to do that, but our site is some kind of weird uh, piece of pie shaped uh, triangle uh, site that, that allowed us to accommodate some of those things. But it's, it's trying to just educate uh, as best as you can and, you know, the main things that we got challenged on were traffic and noise, um, which had been studied by the city previously, where we had an uh, arterial road between us and the, the main driver of noise is always going to be traffic. And then we did um, a traffic study, assuming all the future development um, that had been proposed um, with applications in, even ones that had been just talked about. And we assumed um, building max units that we had. So adding about 10 more units than what we actually ended up getting approved and, and doing all these extra things and kind of above and beyond. And, um, you know, it's still people don't want to talk about it and realize, you know, that yes, there are no, no concerns in all the area roads and infrastructure has been planned for this, this increased development. And, mm. you know, a lot of the heartburn too was, um, California had their general plan or conference plan, wherever you're at guiding plan document update in 2016, 17. And, our site used to only allow for nine units an acre. Um, and now it allows for 22 units an acre and the guiding actually allows for 40 units an acre. So um, the upzoning changed people's thoughts and most buildings there are two stories and we're really the ones to start pushing three stories in more already developed areas. So it was, uh, it was a little hard to stomach on that and people yeah. just had some, some mixed feelings, but you know, again, the, the best you can do is try to educate and um, help them understand and, um, hopefully some people actually did come around. They understood, you know, what we were doing and why we were doing it, but there are always people who just don't want to hear it because it's a change that they don't want to see happen. Right. 
Well, you know, whether you like it or not, you are, you're now a part of this sort of young development group that I've seen across the industry moving forward. You've, you've sort of broken away from this corporate ladder path, started your own thing. Um, do you think that that is good for the industry? Is it, is it more complicated than that? How, how as someone on the inside, you know, so mm -hmm. to speak, how would you break that down? Because I think it's very interesting from the outside looking in because you have sort of the corporate structure, but then you have quite a few really talented younger developers now saying, you know what, I'm going to do my own thing. I think I can do this on my own. It's a little bit of a mixed bag. And, you know, it's, it's funny because it comes back to, you know, some cities feel more comfortable having a corporate national developer, or whatever, come in and, and develop versus, um, you know, people question your, question your ability being a new person. It's like, show me what you've done in the past. It's like, well, I've done all this for other companies. Well, what have you done on your own? And neighbors will try to use that against you in city meetings, whatever it is. And uh, it's just trying to, to share, you know, that your, your experience can go farther, but um, it's it kind of is dependent on different cities and, and neighbors, how they feel about it. Some of them um, appreciate having a smaller developer who's more nimble and flexible and able to, be a little bit outside the box versus some of the national developers who kind of have their model and have to stick to it. Not saying that um, anybody's, you know, creating earth shattering buildings. I mean, it, it does happen far and few between, but you know, most of the stuff that's getting done is a little bit um, production esque and, you know, it's, it's then changing it to try to blend it in the best with the community you can and, mm -hmm. and, you know, having some, some unique features. So it's not all the same, but um, when you get, inside the building, a lot of the stuff is pretty similar. So it's, it's trying to get over that hump and that, you know, prejudice maybe, um, or pre notion that you are, you know, good because one way or the other, if you're a big developer or a new developer, um, or bad yeah. the other way. So, right. What about, you know, this, so there's the, there's the point about you're part of a, a new group. I think that is coming, coming up in the industry right now, young developer, talented, doing some cool things, thinking a little bit differently and taking what you've learned and moving forward with it. The other side of the coin that we haven't even touched on yet, which I, which I think is important to mention is the time, the time that you did decide to start a company right after COVID in the middle of a, you know, kind of a financial crisis, things are changing rapidly all around you. Um, was that a good decision? <laughs> and not, not, not to say that it's, it, you know, I'm, 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 it's, I'm joking a little bit here, but yeah is this a good thing for you? Is it, is it making you stronger? Is it fortifying the mission or would you advise other developers to do it differently for, for any, any particular reason? Yeah. So when we started this venture, you know, it was, it was a good spot. You know, the, the markets were still solid, you know, end of 21 started 22, everything seemed good. And then, you know, as last year went, uh, everything kind of just started tumbling out of control and some people call it Armageddon, whatever you want to say. So it's, it's not, it's not the financial crisis of 07, 08, not, not close to that. You know, it's, it's going to be some pain for some people, but I would say I, I joked about this again today. Um, but you know, if we were six months down the road and we started this process six months later and we were timing it out. So we were basically ready to, to go here in the fall, um, of this year, we, we, you know, we would have perfectly timed it, but mm -hmm. you're never going to time everything perfect. And that's, that's always the hard part. Um, and I think the, the other thing is, you know, 
development cycles of, of a single project, people don't realize they, you know, they just assume that developers go do this and it's, you know, you, you're in it for all the money. You just want to do this quickly and you just slap it up instantly. It's like, no, we started this at, you know, the end of 21. And by the time we're finished and this project is built, it's going to be, you know, the end of 25, probably uh, maybe even, you know, it's touching the January, 2026. So it's, you know, a three to five year process to make these projects come to life. And it's, um, you know, a heavy risk to be taken on. Um, Mm-hmm. and can't be taken lightly and i think you know it's it is a great opportunity and if you not everybody can stomach that either i mean i at the same time sometimes question like would it have been easier to to stay with a a job and feel more comfortable but um i don't get too high or low which which helps my my saneness i should say uh but there are definitely people who who can't handle that instability and uh, but i would say you know if this is something that somebody else is thinking of right now now could be a great time to to take that leap because by the time you you know get a project under contract approved you're probably not starting construction until next spring and by the time you actually deliver the project the the cycle should be corrected by that point so mm. the financial markets i think sound like they're going to you know they change daily but a lot of equity providers and different and banks are kind of looking towards the second half of this year to to know what's going to happen and once the volatility stops with the the fed raising rates and that'll really start thawing the the financial markets and capital markets well as we start to wrap up i would love to hear a little bit about your take on what's next like obviously we've talked a little bit about the market today here in the first part of 2023 but give me your thoughts on on what you're seeing and and how that's going to impact your business and others moving through the rest of this year and into into next year yeah, and so I think the unique thing about real estate at the same time is everybody has different models. There are the people who can make the 30 unit buildings work and, and build these small infill sites. And uh, me personally, I can't make that work. I'm not trained in that mindset and you know how to, to, to cut the, the cookie a different way, we'll call it. But um, you know, everybody has their niche and figures it out based off kind of their experiences, their training. Um, I come from, you know, again from background of doing larger projects, mostly 150 to 300 some unit projects. So uh, that's kind of the the niche I feel most comfortable in. Um, but I see there being lots of opportunity, you know, uh, I'll focus more on the new construction because acquisitions and value adds are a completely different yeah. game. And I, I don't do much of that anymore. But um, new construction, I see different opportunities, um, more so trying to uh, work with cities. I think cities will come around a little bit more and trying to help with financial assistance and um, there's been a lot of inclusionary zoning and, and different green initiatives around the country. So if if people really want to start seeing this happen and, you know, eventually some states are trying to push for net zero buildings, you know, they're going to have to come to the table at the same time. So I see that happening. I don't know if that's quick or, you know, a long process that won't happen for the next five or 10 years. But I think being open to that will really start driving development. And I think some cities who are eager to keep their economic development growing um, will will help developers and understand the processes. But there are a lot of cities at the same time too who say we just don't give handouts and it's deemed a handout even though it's yeah. actually creating value and providing affordable housing for people in, across the across the country. But with the markets, um, construction is plateauing right now. You know, everybody hopes it's going to go down 10% or so, but it, it just kind of becomes the new norm and plateaus. Maybe hopefully it comes down 5% or something and just stays steady and you know, people get hungry, but 
the projects that are gonna that are gonna work are gonna be the ones with unique stories. I think over the next year, um, where you're you're really creating values in high barrier markets, or you're uh, you know building something that is not easily done just because of the the type of construction you're doing. Um, you know, I actually listened to one of your live podcasts a little while ago on on the timber. Um, I forget if, uh, the the man's name. Um, yeah, but Andrew. Yep. Andrew. Yep. Um, yep. But that was uh, impressive. And I think there's opportunities for things like that. And, you know, um, the ESG guidelines that people are trying to to push on to some of these developments, more of the institutional equity partners who are trying to help reduce the carbon footprint and, you know, go more green, keep, you know, pushing the overall goals higher and the bar higher for developers to hit. It's going to make it tougher, but but some things have to give and, you know, um, we'll figure it out and technology will keep innovating and there'll be different ways. But Timber's a, a great example from that that live uh, podcast you had that, that shows there are different ways to skin the cat. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. You know, the idea that, you know, in order to stand out today, it's going to need to be either material you know, kind of approach, build approach and, or kind of brand and identity. How are you creating something that is unique and different in a particular location, right? Because Mm -hmm. if you take a step back and look at all the things being built to your earlier point, you know, it's, it's a lot of the sameness with just some different, you know, skin coats, um, Mm -hmm. and, and kind of like different package deals of the same thing. So I think Andrew's onto something and you're onto something there as far as, moving forward 2023 2024 really needing to to kind of plant your flag and and say I'm I'm going to do this a little bit differently and and here's how mm-hmm. because I think that's really going to be a difference maker. Yeah, and we're you know, we're hoping to do long-term work in Southern California kind of in Coachella Valley Inland Empire and everything like that and plant a flag there and then do stuff here in Minnesota and you know, we see Denver as a potential third market, but it's it's looking at all those spots and you know, Minnesota is a little bit tough right now just because of um, there's conflicting reports right now if Minnesota is growing or declining. There's a couple of reports that have come out in the last couple of weeks that are, uh, who knows who's right um, with population growth. But at the same time, um, you know, Minnesota is a Midwest in general is typically pretty solid. And, you know, you can't just keep raising the rents on, on this kind of clientele. Whereas, you know, in some of these other right. markets, it's just so competitive. And, you know, the Austin, Texas is Dallas, Phoenix, you know, all these places you can kind of just keep saying, well, we'll just increase rents to cover the construction costs. And Minnesota, that doesn't work as well because people, you know, stick their values and they like, I can pay what I can pay. And they will, you know, drop down from going to a luxury apartment to a, a 1990s or a 2000s built part, uh, apartment just because, you know, their values are saving that money a little mm-hmm. further. So in the Midwest, it gets a little bit more difficult. But the thing that I, that interests me the most and kind of I had a couple of conversations over last week because I'm talking to all these people across the country on the capital market side, but um, you know, it's very interesting because everybody's flocking to the, the Texas's and the Florida's to, to do development. And, you know, you're, if you're doing that, you're kind of one of a thousand developers, whatever it may be with the big companies or the little companies and uh, nothing wrong with that. But it's, it's interesting when you start talking to equity, they're like, we only want to be in these markets, but at the same time, you look at some of these other places you can go and, you know, that's something that excites me about Palm Desert is, you know, nobody else is really in this market. And, you know, the, the, there's a lot of fundamentals there, you know, it's not the same employees, you know, where we have Fortune 500 companies and all these jobs um, of high stature, but there's different types of jobs and there's just nowhere for people to go. So it's just a really need. And so it's kind of maybe, you know, do equity groups start looking contrarian to, you know, we're only focused on these big cities where mm. every other player is at and start looking at small ones and, 
a good example of that is like Madison, Wisconsin. Madison, Wisconsin has one of the best fundamentals in the country where they have, I think it's a 99% occupancy or 1% vacancy. Um, and there's really not, there's been, there's been housing built over the years, but not no big influxes and there's student housing built, but there's plenty of room for growth there till they hit equilibrium where some of these other markets like Phoenix um, had so much supply last year that their occupancy dropped from 96 down to 91% just because all the supply came online yeah. at the same time. So which they'll absorb over time, but it's hard for them to take on so quickly. So I'll be interested to see if some of the equity players across the country start changing their tune a little bit about that and start chasing some key secondary markets um, and trying to take advantage of going where other people aren't going versus yeah. following the, the herd. Well, Cody, it's been a really fun conversation. I, I love to always wrap up with a couple of rapid fire questions. If you will indulge me on these, um, Hit me with like the most exciting project you feel like you've seen in the last year or so. What would that be? Uh, I had the chance to tour a couple of cool projects last year, but I think my favorite one would have been the 11 condos. Um, it was 111 condos, I believe, in Gold Medal Park in downtown Minneapolis. That was 42 stories or so. And it's the tallest residential building um, in, the, in the Twin Cities ever, Minnesota. Mm. So it was really cool to see that come to life and just the quality of those condos and um, is absolutely insane just with the, the level of detail they put in that building and they actually brought in an architect from new york i believe um which okay. um we you know in the twin cities you, a lot of the architects are local but that was a something that they really put their stamp on and you know it's an iconic piece now and it'll be a long-term piece of minnesota real estate history going forward and as a new businessman now what what's one book that you would recommend to the listeners if they could go pick it up right now so the, the one book, I'm just, just reading this early on, but it's 12 and a half by Gary Vaynerchuk. And uh, I, I like listening to Gary. Gary's, a, for those who don't know, is kind of a, a marketing media guru and he owns Vaynerchuk Media in New York. Uh, he's a guy who has really built his career. And what, what excites me about kind of his message is he really focuses on the, the client and the end user. And he responds to all comments and stuff like that. He's always just on social media and trying to make his brand better. But that book is more so about learning how to harness your emotions and use them the best way possible in business. So, mm. um, you know, and, and not overthinking things, using compassion, empathy when you're um, making decisions versus, you know, um, eyes turn red and not, not thinking things through sometimes. Yeah, right. Well, we will, we'll be sure to have all of these links down in the show notes uh, that we chatted through on today's conversation. There's only one more thing to do today, and that is to roll the red carpet out for you. Tell the world where they can find you online and kind of what you're up to right now. Yeah. So really just trying to, to get our boots on the ground on a couple of these developments. And so I have my, my one in um, Palm Desert, and then I'm working on a, a larger project here in a suburb in Minnesota that hoping to get some feedback here from the city here in the next couple of weeks, actually. Um, but then, you know, trying to plan long-term and how we can scale this appropriately without going too out of control. And, uh, you know, so my, I kind of have two umbrellas, but my main company is Hayes Dietrich with my partner, Calvin Hayes. So our website is just HayesDietrich.com. Um, and then uh, if you want to reach me, you can send an email to Cody at HayesDietrich.com. And um, I'm on LinkedIn as well. I, I was joking with Chris before the podcast that I'm not on Twitter and all these other things, but uh, my limited presence, you can still find me pretty easily. 
yeah, we'll, we will have people stalk you in the show notes. There's at least a couple of ways they can, they can reach out and connect. But Cody, again, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for chatting today. Great. Thanks for the time, Chris. I appreciate it.